Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of James. We're in chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 as we continue our series that we just began in the book of James. I understand that last Sunday our guest Chad gave a, an amazing encouragement to us as a church. Praise the Lord for Chad being here. A few of you were here. I see and the others didn't like him. Well, anyway, I'm glad he was here with us. Uh, as mentioned already, our evening service has been canceled due to the fact it's Labor Day and none of the servants wanted to labor today. <laughs> this upcoming Wednesday, we continue our series in the Gospel of John. For those who are able to be with us, I'd encourage all of you, if you can, to be with us on Wednesday nights. Uh, we're looking at uh, the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 25 through 36 this upcoming Wednesday. And in that passage, um, Jesus speaks with boldness. And uh, they make that statement concerning him. Uh, they say he speaks boldly. And so what is the secret of this? And I, I'm going to be sharing that this upcoming Wednesday night. If you are a person who doesn't seem to have much confidence or courage in the declaration of the gospel, uh, you might want to come to this study. I'll be sharing some things uh, out of the passage to help us and encourage us to have uh, the courage and the confidence to share our faith. So again, that's next Wednesday night. Uh, next week, we're going to have a guest speaker. His name is David Barton. David Barton and is well known by some, perhaps some of you have heard of him. He uh, is in ministry uh, with uh, uh, wall builders, I believe it is. And he's going to be sharing uh, this upcoming Sunday. And he, he specializes in teaching on America's forgotten history. And a lot of people don't know the foundations of the United States and how they were built on the faith of Jesus Christ. A lot of people deny that, and he's a historian who's capable of coming and sharing with us the roots of our, our, uh, our freedoms that we have here in the United States. He's a, he's a, a great speaker, very uh, engaging, and I, I asked him to come, and he will be with us this next week on the 8th. And so I would encourage you not only to be here, obviously, but bring some friends who perhaps uh, may have questions related to that because he's very well uh, capable of answering any of those questions that relate to that, that subject. And so that's next week, September 8th, Sunday morning, first and second service, he'll be here. Uh, I was asked to mention once again that the signups for the Women's Bible Study ends today, ladies, and if you want to be part of it, I encourage you obviously to be part of that by signing up. A couple of more things. Our office is closed tomorrow, and um, so you might want to be aware of that. And, excuse me, we have a, a ministry team in Pelican Bay. How many of you have ever heard of Pelican Bay Correctional? Many of you have been there. I can see the tattoos, <laughs> the little teardrops on your face. Um, uh, high security prison 
here. It's uh, at the border of uh, California and Oregon. We have our ministry team there right now, our men who are involved in our correctional ministry, our prison ministry, and they've had the opportunity of ministering to some pretty, pretty rough guys, and they had 500 men in attendance as they were sharing with them, and 41 of those men who uh, are there incarcerated, terrible criminals, have been set free by Jesus Christ through that ministry just this weekend. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. And so they're on their way home now, and uh, they all got out safely. <laughs> Praise God. And they're on, they're, they're on their way home right now, and they should be home at 4 a.m. So if you should think of them, they're driving home right now. Uh, please keep them in prayer. Great people. Um, one, one other thing that has nothing to do with the Bible, um, which most of my studies are that way. But um, anyway, you know, Jose, who, Jose is the one who basically heads up the correctional uh, prison ministry. He's also the person who he and, and Sergio are, and others, but those two are the main guys, who do a lot of the work here on the campus. You know, if you look around, you'll see little things like uh, tiles put here or steps put there or, or um, you know, uh, gates. And they're the ones who put those things together. And so I don't know if you've <laughs> had a chance yet to go to uh, the bookstore and on, on, there's a little alcove that we just built. And that, Jose did that and Sergio. And that's beautiful. It's a place where you can sit down and, and meditate and, and, and pray. And, and I've been wanting things like that. So it's just a blessing. And, and uh, so take advantage of that if you have opportunity. There's a little fountain there. And we do it so that you have a, a quiet place, if you can, to sit down and read your Bible, fellowship with people. And these little things that we do around here are really for the glory of the Lord, because I believe that beauty is something that he takes pleasure in. But they're also uh, places for you to take advantage of. And so that's another new thing. And I, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but uh, it's, it's, I've already seen people sitting there and just reading their Bible or just meditating and all. It's, a, it's beautiful, and you might want to look at it before you leave today. With that said, we're in the book of James. We're in chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 as we continue our in-depth series through the, the, the letter to James, the epistle of James. And so I'll begin reading here in uh, James chapter 1 at verse 9. I'll read to verse 12, and then we'll get into our study. And, and let me remind you, the way that I, that I teach is I lay a foundation. It's going to take a while for me to develop with you uh, some things that I want to build the rest of the study on. So be prepared for that. So I'll read verses 9 through 12, and we'll get into our introduction, our foundational words, and move into our study. So beginning at verse 9, James chapter 1, reading to verse 12, James writes, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so as we begin, James has begun in his first chapter by speaking of trials. 
Now, when I first got saved, there was a whole new language I had to learn. It's a language called Christianese. I never spoke it. You know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't know the Christian language, Christianese at all. And so the word trial was a word that was introduced to me, trials. And so I didn't know what trials were. I, I'd heard the word before. I knew that it applied in certain things. There's certain things that you try and all of that that go through trials. But I didn't know what the Christian definition of trials is. And so we'll begin again with the definition. What are trials? Because James is speaking about trials. He's also going to be speaking of temptation. And we'll see that there's a difference between the two. So first, we looked at trials, and the word trial speaks of an, an affliction that is sent by God to test or prove your character, your faith, or your holiness. So it is an affliction sent by God himself in order that you might be tested because it reveals something about you. It reveals your, your character. It reveals your faith. It reveals your holiness. You know, it brings this thing out in you. You know, there are those who say that sports develops character. Sports doesn't develop character. Sports reveals character. And trials do the same thing. Trials reveal things about us. And so God allows these afflictions into our life that he might test us, that he might prove us, that he might refine us so that our character is developed, our faith is developed, and our holiness is developed. So some people will ask, well, why do we go through trials? What purpose do they serve? And, and why would God, who is loving and just, why would he put us through trials? Well, James has already said, trials serve to strengthen the believer whose eyes are set on eternity. In other words, trials are, are part of God's process of bringing us into spiritual maturity. Trials are part of how God brings us into spiritual depth. And when you read your Bibles, every person that you admire in Scripture, every person that you know by name, Guys like Moses, guys like Abraham, guys like David and Peter and, and all of these others, we'll see this in a moment, every one of them went through trials. Not a single one of them was able to avoid them. And these people have all been tried. And so what we see in Scripture is that God brings trials to refine us. And we see many examples of people in Scripture, scripture who went through great trials. For example, we have Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and when you read of the life of Joseph, you see that he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And he spent many years in prison. He went through many afflictions and all. But how did he view this experience? Well, in the end, he makes a statement to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He saw all of the things he went through in all those years as God working in him to do something good. We think of King David. When you look at the life of King David in the Old Testament, he went through many great trials in his life. We see that he was hunted down by a jealous king by the name of Saul. We see that he was rejected by the nation of Israel and betrayed by his own son, son of his heart, a son by the name of Absalom. And we remember that when they came and gave the report to David that Absalom had died, David began to cry and to, and to weep and to sob, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, would to God that I would have died and not you. That's how deeply David loved Absalom, but he had a son who stole the hearts of the people from his own father. 
affliction and trial. In spite of all of that, he was inspired to write of the mercy of God. In Psalm 27, 13 and 14, he said, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Then he says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. We think of the apostle Peter, one who, who loved Jesus deeply, told him, I would, I would not only follow you to the end, I will die for you. And yet we also see that this one denied knowing Jesus Christ. In that garden, he failed his opportunity to stand up for Christ, but Jesus never rejected him. Jesus had said to him in Luke 22, 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew what he would do. And in spite of his failure, Jesus restored him. John tells us in chapter 21, verses 15 through 17, how Jesus began to speak to him and, and said to him, Peter, he said, do you love me? And then he said, feed my lambs and feed and shepherd my sheep. He went through trials. He went through provings. He went through afflictions. He went through a variety of things. And yet he was restored and came to know the Lord in a deep way. You can't help but think of Job. Job is recorded in Scripture as the greatest of all the people of the East. In a short time, when you read the book of Job, it only takes two chapters to see this. He lost his possessions. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. And what was his response? According to Job 23:10? Job said, he knows the way I have taken and when he has tested me, I will emerge as gold. So he went through trials. And James is speaking about trials and afflictions here in the first chapter. And somebody says, well, what do they do in our lives? I mean, what good are trials? Why should I rejoice? Why, why should I count it all joy when I fall into a trial? Why should I do that? Because James had said that. He said it in verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Why should I? Well, there are, let me, if you take notes, let me give you seven things right now as I'm introducing this study to you. Let me give, give you seven things that are the fruit of enduring trials. One, when you endure trials, you grow to understand his concern and protective love for us. We begin to see that God is concerned for us and that he protects us. The psalmist in Psalm 32, verse 6, said it like this. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. When you're going through trials, you begin to understand that all may forsake you, yet God doesn't. And there's no hope anywhere else, but there's always hope in God. Because he refines you and he brings you to a place where the only person that you will trust is God in that deep and most personal way that you can trust anyone. So he teaches you that he's there, and you begin to learn that he is concerned for you, that he does protect you. A second thing is they produce faith-filled patience because you wait on him to deliver us. That, again, is what he had said in James 1, verse 3, the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why, like I said a moment ago out of Psalm 27, 14, we are to wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Third, they refine and purify your faith because they remove from us anything that replaces God in our hearts. God will refine you until it's just you and him. 
See, that's what the heart of every believer ought to be, by the way. That's not some advanced thing in Christianity. That's just being a Christian. I think today there are so many people who, who have forgotten that or perhaps have never learned that or don't know that. That the bottom line is, is that we have a God who is to be number one in our life and everything else is supposed to be after that. And so there are things that you can have that replace the Lord. It's very easy to see that. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's a material thing, whether it's having children, whether it's simple relationships, whether it's a job, there are a lot of things that, that, that will seek to replace God's preeminent place in your heart. God doesn't allow rival thrones to be established in you. And God will break down some things, and, and uh, you hate to hear that, but it's true. He will break some things down so that you see that the only thing that matters is him. Because you've been praying and you've been saying, God, I want to be more like you. And he breaks things down so that you become that way. And so they remove from us anything that replaces the Lord. Proverbs 17, 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. In Isaiah 48, 10, God said, I, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I've refined you. I've tested you. You see, when I do weddings, often uh, if they have a gold ring, I'll say this ring is made of gold, and, and gold is purified through heat. And what happens is it is heated to the point where it boils, and, and then the dross, the impurity, rises to the top, and then the goldsmith will take and, and will, will remove the dross, the, the impurity. And the goldsmith always knows when the gold is, is pure, when he can look at it and see his own reflection. And, and that's what the Lord is doing in us through the trials we go through. Is he's, 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 he's refining us in the refiner's fire, and our life seems to be heated up, and, and, but the impurities are rising to the top, and the Lord is, is scooping that off and discarding that dross, and, and then he looks in you, and his face is now reflected in your life. That's what you want to be. You are created to be in the image of God, and God is doing a work in you, and he refines you that way. So that's one of the reasons why you rejoice. A fourth thing is they prepare us to be with Jesus Christ. Trials remind us that earth is not our home. Trials remind us that we're only pilgrims and we're just passing through. We have our great days. We have our wonderful days, our good days, and, and then there are the days that aren't so good. We go through those things. We go through all of those things, but the bottom line is, is these trials that we go through reminds us that there's something better, something awaiting us. In a moment, we're going to see that. We're going to receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so we understand, I am just passing through. I am being refined, and then one day I'll see him. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, the apostle said, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though is though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A fifth thing is they give us experiences that enable us to speak about the grace of God. The Lord working in our life, people will see that things are going on, and they'll ask, how do you endure? How do you go through that? How, how, why don't you, like Job's wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Thank you, baby. Great advice, but not today. They enable us to speak about the grace of God. 
I felt alone, but I wasn't alone. I lost all things, but I gained all things. I wanted depth, and God took me to a deep place. No, I can speak about the grace of God because God works that way. See, this is a message. This kind of idea is foreign to a lot of people because they say within themselves, God isn't that way. No, the only ones who say God is not that way are the ones who don't read the Bible. They've created an image of God according to their own likeness. But the Bible makes it very clear that, no, God gives us experiences that enable us to understand his grace. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep unrighteous, the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We know that Paul endured great trials. He speaks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. He actually outlined some of the things that he endured as a minister and missionary. He speaks of that. He says, he labored. He endured stripes. He went to prison. He was in danger of dying. He was scourged five different times. He was beaten with rods three times, received a stoning, was shipwrecked three times. He says, I lived in constant peril, worked tirelessly, suffered sleeplessness often, was constantly hungry and thirsty, and suffered cold, and went without clothing often. That was his life, taking the message of the gospel. But how did he view that? There would be those who were saying, oh God, why have you done this to me? Why have you allowed this in my life? How did he view those things? In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, he said this. He said, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so, we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. I have been tested and approved, and that's why I can take this message where I go. He said to the Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you, he said, to suffer. That's a, an odd way to think today. But he says it's actually a divine privilege for you to suffer for Christ. The sixth thing is they, they help us understand our own weaknesses, but they also help us accept those who have weaknesses. It causes us to become compassionate and more understanding trials. My mom suffered with illnesses from the time I was four years old. My mom was 24 years old when she had her first epileptic seizure. And my mother, from the time she was 24 until she died at the age of 83, suffered one thing after another, one thing after another for 59 years. My mother suffered from one thing after another. Her last year that she lived on this earth was in a bed. She had broken her back. I had come to visit. I was doing ministry in New Mexico. My mom had come to see me as I ministered, had gone home. I was about to get on the plane to fly home when I got a phone call from my sister, and my sister said, Mama fell, and Mama's hurt. I couldn't go see my mom, and I never really was able to really communicate with her again. My mama went into uh, very bad pain. She broke several, several uh, um, broke her back in several places. Mama was in a bed for the last year of her life. I speak to her on the phone, but she entered into dementia. It was really tough to watch my mom. But my mom was a very compassionate woman. 
we were, I was just talking to my sister, one of my sisters just the other day, actually two of them, my two sisters, and we were speaking about my mom and how my mom was the person who would bring home the, the homeless person and she'd want to bring him into the house and she'd want to feed him and care for him. That was my mom. And that was even before she was saved. She had a compassionate heart. And when she got ill, I saw what she did. I saw 59 years of her being ill after one thing after another, one thing after another. She had a bag at the end. She, you know, she had, she had taken these, this uh, medicine because my mom had lupus, and she had taken a medicine that had destroyed her, her colon, and she had rips and tears, and she had to have a surgery, and, and it was one thing after another I saw my mom, and she had a heart that was very compassionate in the end. My mom cared, and me as a little boy, I grew up watching that, and I am telling you that that afflictions, when viewed in the proper way, as my mom did, they give you compassion for others, because my mother understood pain. My mother was able to, she was able to understand where other people would say, they don't look so sick, they don't look so bad. My mom would say, they are, they have invisible illnesses. My mama had invisible illnesses. People would approach her and they would think she's okay because she was walking, when in fact my mom was struggling to walk. But they'd say, oh, you look good, Bonnie. And then they'd hug her and they'd bruise her body and she'd, she'd be in such pain because she had lupus and people didn't know that. She used to say, I wish that I had something that people could see that they'd know I'm sick, David. Right? That was my mama's cross. But as I watched her, I grew to have compassion. People will say, and, and forgive me if it sounds self-serving, but people will say of me sometimes, you have a compassionate heart. Where do you think I got it from? Where do you think I got it from? I got it by watching someone in pain. I got it by suffering with them. And you feel it. That's how you gain it. And so trials are that way. They can help us understand our own weaknesses, but they can also help us to accept those who have weaknesses. Somebody said, trials make room for consolation. There's nothing that makes a man have a big heart like a great trial. Great hearts can be made only by great troubles. And then seventh, they help us to see God more clearly. They mature our understanding of him. You see, the people that we believers most admire as examples are often the ones who have been severely tried. You say, that person has such love. That person has such character. That person has such zeal. Talk to them about their life. Ask them, how did you gain that? How did you become that? Where did you get your boldness? Where did you get your courage? Where did you get your strength? Where did you get your compassion? How did you learn to love? And they'll tell you. How did you learn to pray? When you pray, I know heaven is open up. How? And they'll tell you. Through the furnace of affliction, through times of trial, through being on my carpet in my bedroom, crying out to God, save me or I die. That's how. Not many people want to go that road. Today, we would prefer just opening up a book or Googling it and finding out how to have it. That's how people gain information today. But no. The saints of old, the ones we admire the most are the ones who suffered the most. They went through the toughest times. In James, in chapter 5, verse 11, we'll see this as we get there. Uh, it reads, indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the per perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So as we go through trials, we are often in the position of needing wisdom to handle them. So we ask of God, 
and he gives us the wisdom desired, and he doesn't reproach us for asking. In Proverbs 2, verse 6, it says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so, that was your introduction. As James begins in verse 9, he says this, so let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. So James gives an exhortation. Notice his illustration. He refers to two members of the church. One is poor and the other is rich. The lowly brother, and that's who he speaks of first in verse 9, let the lowly brother, this lowly brother is the believer who holds a lower station in life, financially and socially. You see, for the poor, trials, especially financial trials, can be especially difficult to endure. And there were many Christians undergoing financial hardships. In that day, as is true today, in society, the poor were often held in contempt. In Proverbs 14, verse 20, it says, the poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. Proverbs 22, verse 7, the rich rule over the poor. The borrower is servant to the lender. You have a credit card, the borrower is servant to the lender. You go and buy something on time, late, they used, to, uh, used to lay it away. I don't know if they still do that or not. You're buying it on time. The borrower is a servant to the lender. You owe them. So under financial strain, it's easy to become envious and jealous of the rich. And you can become envious of people who are not undergoing such pressure. Proverbs 14.30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And you can look and you can say, how come they have that and I don't? Why do they have this and I, I should? And you can actually begin to envy people. And you can, in general, some people can simply resent those who are financially prosperous. And we look at them and we say, how come they have that? And so in our society, there are numbers of people who are upset at the salaries of, of CEOs of major corporations. They'll say, oh, these people are making money off the poor. And, and there's a resentment that's that's now been enshrined in, in the way of thinking here in the United States. And I was reading to our Wednesday night Bible study. Some of you perhaps were there. I was mentioning uh, something about a guy named Jeff Bezos. You've heard of him. Everybody, I'm assuming, heard of him. If not, you're going to hear of him right now. Jeff Bezos is the richest man. He, his estimated worth, and it, it fluctuates daily, basically. So when I looked this up a couple of weeks ago, his estimated worth is around $154 billion. Now, see, we don't ripple anymore at that. Uh, you know why we don't? We don't know what that means. <laughs> we really don't. What's a billion? Thousand million. He has $154,000 million. That still doesn't ripple. How about this? It has been... It has been mentioned that his estimated um, per minute that he makes per minute $230,000. That I can, I can grab that one. $230,000 a minute. A minute. I'd like to have five minutes of his time. <laughs> 
That's over a million dollars in five minutes. He's making $230,000 a minute. During this church service, I made him rich. Now think about it. We can't relate to that. That is beyond anything we can relate to. But we do know that's an awful lot of money. And people can become upset because somebody has that kind of riches. And so what they, they do in our society is they can begin to demand greater taxes on, on those whom they refer to as the rich. Well, the problem is just who determines the amount of money that qualifies you as rich? Who's going to make that determination when somebody says, well, he's rich. Okay, tell me, by what standard is that person rich? Oh, and now we've got all these people with opinions about what rich is, and that's taking place today. It took place then. What constitutes riches, and who determines when someone becomes rich? And if I said it like this, if I said, let's become American for a moment, and let me ask you for a question, are you rich? The average person here would say, are you kidding me? If I was rich, you'd think I'd be here. Are you rich? And the answer is yes, you are. Do you have more than one pair of shoes? You're rich. Do you have more than one shirt that you wear or dress that you wear or pants that you wear, more than one? You're rich. Do you have a house that you live in that has heat and has running water and a stove? You're rich. Are, do you have enough money to go out and, and buy a book? Do you have enough money to stop at a, at a fast food restaurant on the way home or go someplace to eat? You're rich. And you say, no, I'm not. Well, yes, you are. You see, I didn't realize that because, like you, I'm an American. I'm used to what I see. And what I see is levels of riches. We are extremely rich as a nation. We just don't realize that. We just don't understand that. I was in India, and I'm on a bus, and my friend who is the guide who's, who's talking to us turns to me, and I'm talking to him, and I look, and, and I see a woman, and she's on a street corner in a busy city, and she's, got, she's underneath a tarp. It's 105 degrees outside, a lot of humidity. It's hot, and she's sitting underneath a tarp, and there's a pile of rocks kind of like large rocks, and then there's a pile of gravel next to her, and I see her reach over and pick up one of these rocks that's the size of a softball, and with a hammer, she begins to hit it, and, and he says, you see that woman there? And I said, yes. He says, you know what she's doing? I said, no, I actually, no, I don't. What is she doing? She's making gravel. She's making gravel. He said, she sits under that tarp 10 hours a day. And with that hammer, she breaks rocks into small rocks. She makes gravel. She sells it to construction. He says, you know how much she makes in a day for 10 hours of labor with a hammer and rocks? 50 cents. She makes 50 cents a day. She will take the 50 cents after a 10-hour workday, and with 50 cents, she feeds her family. Now I'll ask it again. Are we rich? And the answer is yes, we are. Yes, we are. We just don't know it. Why don't we know it? We don't know it because we compare ourselves with others who are rich, and therefore we don't have as much as they, therefore we are not rich. 
So suddenly we say, then those who are rich ought to pay all my bills. I shouldn't have to work. I shouldn't have to start a business. I shouldn't have to do anything. I should go to college for free. I should have all of these things. And that really grabs hold of people's minds, but they never really think, then who's going to be, who's going to pay for that free stuff? No, no, I'm not getting into politics. But that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. It is a greed mentality that is almost reversed now. So if you work hard, you're bad. If you take what you have made, then you're actually good. And that's what's happening right now. Be careful that it doesn't happen in the body of Christ. Be careful because James has given us an example. He's saying you have a rich person. We'll see this even in more detail later. He, he, he really develops this. I'm just giving you an introduction to what he says later. You have a rich person and a poor person. And the attitudes is what he's dealing with first. And he says, let not the poor person become envious. What he's saying is, let in verse 9 again, let the lowly brother glory in exaltation, but the rich in humiliation. What are you talking about? Well, we need to understand that it's not money itself that is evil. It's the love of money. It's the greed. It's the envy that is and we need to remember that Jesus taught his followers to seek first his kingdom and care for other people. He taught us to make sure that our priorities are spiritual. In John 6, 27, Jesus said, Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. When he speaks of the food that endures, that speaks of that which strengthens your soul, not just your body. And that this... this this food that endures is knowing and doing the will of God. And James makes it clear that the one who is financially poor is to rejoice in his exaltation. What does that mean? Well, there are different applications. There are some commentators who see this as speaking of a poor man becoming wealthy. So the command to that man would be to avoid becoming proud because of his riches. In other words, don't rejoice because you can now buy more things or cater to your fleshly desires. The reason for that would be prosperity as a way of blinding our eyes concerning eternity. Proverbs 23, 5 says it like this, Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. That's why, why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, uh, Timothy, you're to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So prosperity has a way of blinding our eyes. And so on one hand, when he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, it may be be careful that you don't become prideful and begin to depend on any favor God may give to you that he has given to you riches. Be aware of that. But there's another perspective, and that would be for the poor person to rejoice in their salvation. You're saved. You're blessed to have fellowship, fellowship with Jesus. Heaven is your home. Rejoice in your exaltation. In Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul said, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. 
And then he went on to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've enjoyed the finest restaurants, and I've eaten the poorest of foods. I've worn nice clothing, and I've been almost without anything. And I've learned that there's one thing that matters, and that is that I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to do. You see, in verse 9, when he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, he moves on to say, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. On the other hand, the brother who is financially prosperous also has pitfalls. He can begin to think himself more blessed than others because he has riches and forget God. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8, Moses said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. You may have been blessed financially, but you can begin to put all of your trust in your riches. And remember, those things don't always last. You see, God is at work both in the poor and the rich alike. In Proverbs 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. So the rich is to glory in his humiliation, in his abasement. The rich man has a new mind of humility because he gains an eternal perspective. His value is no longer found in his financial accomplishments and his possessions. His value is derived from his relationship to God through Jesus. It's interesting how people will treat those whom they know are very rich. And very often, not everybody does this, but many do, that person who's very wealthy will be treated differently than the one who's poor. That's a fact. And if you haven't seen that yet, keep living. You will. It's just a fact. The very wealthy get perks that you never get. The powerful get perks that you never get. There's a class of people that seem to get away with everything because of their connections. And the rich people, that's what happens very often. Not all rich people. No, of course not. There's some wonderful Christian people, loving people. They don't do that. But that doesn't mean people don't treat them differently. And they do. Why? Because this person buys. This person has. And that's what happens. We know that. Live for a while. You'll see that. And it's true. And so a rich man is to actually glory in his humiliation because his real value is his relationship with the Lord. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus changes our view of life. We no longer stagger after financial accomplishments. Relationships and accomplishments are now understood to be the most meaningful when they're in Christ. The accomplishments that we have, when they're done as unto the Lord, they humble us. The relationships, those are the things that matter. I've been at the bedside of more than one person dying. I've been there more than once. 
And you'll have conversations with people as they're about to enter into eternity. And those are the most real ones you'll ever have, by the way. Those are the most real conversations you'll ever have. Where they start telling you the things that matter. When they start saying to you, this is my regret. Because I'm their minister. I'm their pastor. And they're, they're, they're trying to, to get things off their chest. And they will share with you. And they will tell you. And they're not messing around. Because they know that they're going to close their eyes and end up looking at God. They know that. So it's very serious and very real. Until you're in that position, you may have all kinds of ideas about what you're going to be or you're going to do or what you'll be saying. No, let me tell you, when you're on a bed and you know that you're about to die, you get very real. And I've been there more than once. And I've been there listening. And I've been there talking. And I've been there praying. And I can tell you this. Every pastor who's done this can tell you this. They don't say, man, I wish I'd have bought that Porsche. I've never had a person say that. Man, I wish I would have spent more time on the job. They never say that. When they start saying the wishes, they're always relational. Always. I wish I'd have spent more time with my wife and my family. I wish I'd have told my son how much I loved him. I wish that I'd have been a better father to my daughter. I wish I'd have been a better man. That's what you hear. That's the kind of thing that goes on in your heart because here we are pursuing our wealth and pursuing our goals and pursuing everything else except for God and except our families. We're pursuing everything. Oh, I wish I, no, you don't wish you had those shoes and no, you don't wish you had that house and no, you don't wish that you had that, that car and no, you don't wish you had that neighborhood. No, you don't. What you wish you had was more love and more time with your family and you'll not have it this side of the earth of heaven. That's a fact. That's a fact. I'm letting you know in advance. And this isn't to bum you out. This is, I'm a minister. I'm supposed to bum you out. No, this is just the truth. I'm being real with you. I'm being real with you. I've stood there. I've been there. I've seen it. I've been on that bed myself thinking that I'm about to move on. I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be on a bed saying I might be moving on. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. I've had it, and I know it. And I am telling you, the only thing you do is you sit there thinking, should have given more time, should have done more. I wish I'd have been with her. That's what you think. It's not, I wish I had a car. It's not, I wish I had these shoes. I am telling you, learn that now before it's too late. Learn it now. Rich man, glory in your humiliation. Glory that you've been put in a place where only God really matters, where the things that matter are relationships and friendships. Why is that? Well, because as, as a flower of the field, he will pass away. Why don't, we, why don't we go out and plant flowers during the summer? Why don't we go out and dig in our garden and put down all of these? Why? Because they die why do they die? Because the sun rises with a burning heat and it withers the flower and the beauty thereof fades away. It perishes. He says, so is the rich man. And you see the guy in the, that $2,000 suit and those $1,000 shoes and that, that $300 tie and that $400 shirt and that cool haircut and you see that, but all of that's going to perish and sometimes they're buried in that beauty. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Glory in your humiliation. As a flower of the field, you'll pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat 
then it withers the grass, its flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that relationships matter. In Proverbs 23, 4, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Ultimately, all that lasts is what you've done for the Lord. In Psalm 49, 16 through 19, do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. He leaves everything behind. They said that of the rich man, Rockefeller. How much did he leave behind? And the answer was everything. He leaves everything behind. And so, he moves on finally in verse 12 by saying, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he returns to the Christian enduring the afflictions. He's returning to his initial thoughts that we saw in verses 3 and 4. And he says, blessed is he who endures temptation. He who is tried and passes the test of the trial, is what he's saying. Temptation. When he speaks of blessed is the man who endures temptation, temptation is different than a trial. Temptation is an enticement to sin, arising from desires or outward circumstances. We need to know that Satan tempts in order to undermine. God brings trials to refine and develop. Our victory comes through faithfully holding fast to Scripture's promises and the power of the Spirit. And we respond like Jesus did when Satan was attempting to cause him to fall, and he took him on a high mountain, or he showed him the kingdoms of the world. He told him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple or to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus' response there was simply, it is written. And that's how you deal with these temptations. We hold fast to the promises of God. We know the word of God, and we exercise it as the sword of the Spirit. So we, we endure. We remain faithful. And in doing so, it reveals genuine salvation. In Psalm 119, 67, the psalmist said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In Psalm 119, verse 71, he said, It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I, I'm, I'm, I'm able to not only quote the Scripture, but know its meaning. There are people today who are able to quote Scriptures, but they don't know what the Scripture means. They're able to parrot, but they don't know what it means. And I see that a lot. Facebook is filled with that. Seriously, and I'm not knocking those. It's just true. You, you'll get people who are giving their, their, their spiritual advice on Facebook all the time. And, and I read it, and I, I look at it, and I say, but that's not what that means. They're able to quote Scripture, but they don't know what it means. But going through affliction caused the psalmist to say, I am blessed that I went through it. I learned your statutes. I learned them not simply by quoting, but I learned what they actually mean. I have experienced God in the depths of these trials. I have seen my God delivers. I have learned his character. I've learned his ways. I've learned how he is. Listen, what I'm speaking to you is not milk. I'm speaking meat to you, and I hope you receive it. I hope you receive it. 
because you will be and are tried and probably every day in one form or another. And those trials don't go away. They only increase. They continue to increase to the point where it's, you're kind of like gone through the fire and Christ is revealed in you. And that's how you learn the things of God. You see, we'll go through these things, but notice what he says. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He receives the crown of life, the reward for faithfully enduring. That crown is a head wreath. It's the victor's prize that was awarded in Greek games. He speaks of the crown of life that's promised to those who love him. In the New Testament, life doesn't speak of existence. It speaks of relationship to God. It speaks of a spiritual quality that is full and rich and continual. And Jesus said that a man's life doesn't consist in the things he possesses. Life is more than simply eating and drinking. Life is revealed by Jesus as knowing God and enjoying fellowship with him. That's what he said in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent me. On earth, we experience life as a burden filled with weariness and concerns. And somebody once said, if we have any crown at all, it's simply a crown of thorns. But for those who love him, God is waiting to give them a crown of life for enduring. And we're going to have fellowship with him on earth and abide forever in glory with him. And because of this, we hold fast to the Lord and we seek his kingdom first. We are aware of the prize and thus we run in such a way as to obtain it. Because in the end... You're not going to be asking the Lord, how come you allowed this? Why did you do this? In the end, you'll be looking at him eye to eye, face to face, and you'll say to him, I am unworthy. You made me worthy. You have opened up the door to heaven for me. The trials were good for me. I learned your ways, and oh, God, thank you for welcoming me into your kingdom. You made me into the person I wanted to be but could not be on my own. That's what trials do. That's why you rejoice. That's why you're able to count it all joy. We enter into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. That's what James is teaching us, and that's what we need here in the 21st century right now. The church needs to strengthen itself in the Lord and hang on because God is doing something in us right now, and he wants to use you to reach those who don't have a hope in Christ, and they'll see what you go through, and they will ask you, how do you stand like that? How do you make it through? There's so many people like Job's wife will say, why don't you just curse God and die? I thought God was so good, and look what you go through. And you can say, you want to know what this is? This is preparation for glory. I have a crown of life awaiting me because I love him. My God is good. He doesn't let go of me. He holds me in his hand. He takes me through the valley. I will arrive safely at my destination, and Jesus Christ will get all the glory, and that's why I go through trials, so I might be like him. That's how it works. That's how it works, that you may know him. Have you ever said, I want to be like you? Well, his answer would be, well, I was a wounded healer. I was a wounded healer. I was bruised for your sins, your iniquities. And if you want to be like me, you will be bruised also. But out of that broken heart will come compassionate love that is of the God kind. And if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. And I've been asking the Lord for that for almost 49 years. And I can tell you, he is good. He is good.
He has never left me. He has never forsaken me. He is with me no matter what, no matter trial, no matter what pain, no matter what loss, and no matter what sorrow, no matter what disappointment, he is there. He lifted me up. He put my feet on solid ground, and he'll do the same for you. He loves you. He loves you. Never forget that. Your God loves you. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.